your name correctly for me yes i'm jessica saran like the rap like the rap (laughs) great and you are from i'm from amherstburg ontario which is in southwestern ontario canada the nearest big city is detroit michigan and i grew up on a small farm in canada about 30 minutes from detroit all right and what brings you to prague well i came to this country first 10 years ago I actually was here to do an artist residency in a town about an hour and a half south of Prague called Tabor. And one thing led to another. I was in Tabor. I was going to stay in Europe a little longer. I fell in love. That ended horribly. And during that time, I got a grant from the Canadian government to do a project about this country. So I left the small town where my heart was broken and moved to Prague to get started. Okay, and now that you're here, you run um, an organization, a group. Uh, I'm not sure how to define it. I do. So I have a business called, it's going to be called The Becoming, but the programs I offer are called Becoming Artist. They're Becoming Artist programs. So I started teaching online courses and coaching other artists. All right, give me some more understanding of this because this is all, this podcast is all about how the business of the arts works. Now you've chosen to open a business that's part of the business of the art. So what brought you to the point of saying, I should create this business? A lot of different things. Oddly enough, when I first moved to Prague, I was in the middle of a nervous breakdown and I got a therapist and I was basically the the starving artist. You know, I had been making art for a long time. I had had exhibitions, got grants, sold some art, but you know, it was it was never sustainable. And so I had this therapist, and amongst other things we discussed, she said, you know, maybe you should actually study marketing a little bit to see how that might support you in your art. We all need to study more marketing. That I find, for me, that's my biggest weakness. Like, mm. I can make a beautiful thing. I can create an interesting concept, whatever. But it's getting it in front of the right people that is the most difficult part for creative people to figure out how to do. Absolutely. And it was it was funny to me because before that, when I had lived in uh, Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, I was getting my master's. And I had this fascination with these things I was learning about um, conscious business, people who were thinking about spirituality and how to be a certain kind of leader in business and what became possible when, let's say, people were thinking differently in the corporate world about marketing, about not just having one bottom line, but two bottom lines. I had this weird fascination with it. So when she said, why don't you study marketing? I actually found, because I'm also very interested in spirituality and personal development, so I found people who were running what they would call heart-based or heart-centered businesses and who are interested in spirituality. So the first person I studied with was a Sufi who taught marketing and business practices. Um, I know the word Sufi, but I can't put a finger on why I know it. So it's the esoteric version of, or like, in, in every religion, there's the like the mystical traditions, yes, the esoteric tradition, and then the more exoteric tradition is more like the fundamentalist or just like your, your religion as you know it. My so, father's actually a clergy. So yeah, I know a little bit about religion, but not enough. Just enough to be dangerous is how much I know. So Sufism is basically the esoteric version of Islam. 
All right. Yeah. So anyway, I started learning about business and marketing and I kind of loved it. I kind of thought it was fascinating. And of course, I was trying to apply it to me being an artist. And at the same time, I also, there was a couple of things happening. So I had finished this big grant project and I was trying to figure out what to do next. And I needed to get back into my own studio to focus on my art, not just the art that I had done for the project. And so I, I thought, well, I know I'm not the only artist who's studying with this. Uh, struggling with this. So I developed a course. I decided I'm just going to get my ass back to the studio and develop a course at the same time that could help other artists do the same thing. It, it's the, uh, the one thing that every artist asks, basically. Like I do portfolio reviews online for a group called Lens Culture, which is a uh, photographer's. And almost every single person that I do a review for has a question that says, how can I get more exposure? How can I get more clients? How can I sell more? How can I whatever? Because the one thing that we all don't seem to know how to do is market our work. We know how to produce beautiful things, but we don't know how to sell them, market them. I mean, license them, whatever other style of way to create income. We don't know how to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and I actually found that a lot of artists struggle just to make the art as well. There's a whole contingent who would love to sell it, but they're not even necessarily making it consistently or they're struggling with some part of the creative process. That's not my problem. I, can, I can't I can stop making things. I'm, I'm fine with that. But yeah. yes, there are people that have sort of creative blocks. There have been, you know, five years here and there where like I just couldn't make anything for whatever reason. But yeah, it does happen to people. But really, I think that the, the biggest struggle, like I think one of those things that creates those creative blocks is the why am I going through all this work and effort to create these things that nobody wants or nobody buys or nobody wants to exhibit or whatever. So it becomes this whole sort of, you know, chicken and the egg, catch 22 kind of like which comes first? Is it selling or making the beautiful work or is it, you know, exhibiting or making the beautiful work? I think it's undeniable that we need our work to go out into the world and to have people receive it. And yeah, it's incredibly frustrating. And sometimes it's really scary as well. I think a lot of the artists that I work with, they're actually scared of being that vulnerable and putting their work out there. Always. Every time I enter a competition or submit something, I'm like, if they don't accept it, like they don't like me as a person and they don't like my entire life's work and everything I've worked for. Like, absolutely. It's a horrible crushing and vulnerable emotional experience to do that and then be denied yes time and time again yes yeah so I, I developed the first online course it was called keep your ass in the studio and I was figuring out how to even have an online course how to market it how to get students and then this was back in 2015 or actually maybe the first course was 2014 but then I started working with these artists and they wanted to keep going after the you know first four-month course was finished and so I started to develop courses around okay yeah how do you have an exhibition you know how do you make some money and um, I just kept going with it and I was studying marketing, like I said, in business, but I was also working with my own coaches. And so I really got into the whole world of coaching and, you know, starting to look at, I don't want my life to be limited by so much of what I see around me, by so many artists or what they believe is possible. 
So certainly there's some who, you know, have figured it out. The art stars, they're making it, they've gone for it. But there's Which a whole... Like, they're like 1% of 1%. There's so few of them in comparison to the sheer volume of people that make creative things. Yeah, and the rest, you know, I got so... There's a couple of things. I got so tired of believing and feeling like that's all... that. There's only so much that's possible. And I also felt like I'm actually you know, this is dangerous to say, but I'm so uninspired by most artists. Not just by the art, but by how they're choosing to live. Well, who says you have to be inspired by artists? I know many great artists who are inspired by, you know, the way the wind blows through a tree or, you know, you don't have to be inspired by other artists. That's not a necessity. Yeah. And I found out I didn't even want to spend that much time around them. Well, that, yeah, that happens at certain times in your life as well. Like yeah. we were just talking before this about how like as a general whole, I don't hang out. I'm a photographer, but I don't like photographers as a general whole. And I'm perfectly fine with admitting that it's my own issue. <laughs> but I just find that they just don't aren't interested. Most of them are just not interested in the same things I'm interested in talking about. So I just stay away from them. Yeah. And I also started to I, I started to reflect on the exhibitions I've had when have they actually been satisfying and when have I actually gotten the results that I wanted? And I well, realized that, but now you're putting in the word, like you're putting in expectations into it of what you wanted out of an exhibition. That, that's an expectation of some result. Mm -hmm. Those are dangerous. Why? Because expectations are so easily not reached. <laughs> and then you feel like you didn't achieve the thing you wanted to achieve because you put such a high expectation on some, outcome of an exhibition well I what actually started to happen is I I was evaluating which exhibitions I've had have I had that have been deeply satisfying be that through sales or connections or more opportunities or just the actual experience of showing up and being that room in that room uh, during the opening reception was actually a beautiful one where I actually felt a connection to the people and the experience we had was was quite lovely and I realized that, you know, I started to apply some of these things I had learned in marketing. Like, I have a particular kind of audience. And those people tend to hang out in certain places. And that isn't always in the gallery. Very rarely is it actually in the gallery. Yeah. The most people who buy art do not have time to just hang out in galleries. Most of them are business people or entrepreneurs or whatever else and they're, they're busy doing their own thing and, and they love and they happen to love art but most of them that's why they have that's why they work through galleries as far as buying works because mm. the the gallery's job is to connect with those people and basically not waste their time and not make them see a million different artists hoping that they find something they love it's the gallery's role to basically edit through and curate going okay this particular artist this collector would like those are the people that will buy the works. But they don't hang out in galleries, do they? I don't think they do. Not always. And I think that there's a whole group of people that I've sold work to who wouldn't even call themselves art lovers, but they loved oh, yeah. the piece I made. Sure. Right. And that's a whole different group of people. Mm -hmm. So for me, it became about actually, if I can create art, I can create a career on my terms. And I think this podcast is interesting because I certainly don't have the formula for, you know, how to 
you know, break into the art world. If I had the formula, I wouldn't be doing a podcast. I'd be in the studio making art. Yeah, I don't I, I don't think many of us are given it if it even exists. And it doesn't. And I realized I wasn't actually that interested in what it would take anyway to get into that world. Well, I mean, that's a question that I I'll, I'll would get to later in the podcast, but I'll go ahead and ask it now, which is the, the idea of what is success? So like, because people mm-hmm. say, oh, I want to be successful. Okay. What does that mean? Does that mean enough money? Does that mean enough time? Does that mean enough space? Does that mean being in a you know solo show at the Tate Modern or MoMA? Or does that mean uh, being in the art history book as a, the, the, the shining light of a particular movement or a style? Like what's everybody's definition of success is so different that when we all talk about oh, what does it take to succeed? Well, we all have different definitions of success. Well, I think that's a beautiful question. And I think it's one that most of us aren't answering either. So we're we're chasing after something that we think might be our version of success, but it isn't necessarily. I can't can't say that I have a clear-cut definition of my mind and success, of what success is as an artist. But of course, there's different aspects of it too. For me, there's what does it mean to be successful in the studio making the work I want to make? Right. It has to feel like it's completely my work. I have to feel like I'm going into territory that feels, I use the word authentic a lot. I love that word. It feels like it's the work that only I can make. Mm -hmm. So there's a level of success I feel that comes from that. Um, In terms of a relationship to people who look at my art, you know, success to me is when the person standing in front of it cries or is moved so deeply because they feel like I've touched some part of their experience. It's funny. I, I agree with that as a general whole, but I also think that they should cry and then buy it. <laughs> Sales is great. Yeah. I, mean, I my, my opinion is, is like, yeah, I'm very, I'm, I'm sounding like I'm more and more shallow and petty the longer I do this podcast and keep saying things like this. But I mean, my original idea before I started this podcast and before I started asking people things like what is success and things like this is, I generally said uh, the most the most sort of admirable thing that a person can do for an artist is to buy their work. Like it's nice to say, "Oh, I love your work," or "I was moved by your work," or "or a critic writes a great review about you," or whatever. But really, the thing that actually motivates artists to say, "Like, okay, somebody really loved it so much that they were willing to pay money for it, and they wanted to have it in their lives, and they wanted to then pass it on to their children and whatever else." That's the thing that I strive for. I want people to want to have my work as part of their lives enough that they're willing to put money to it. Mm. I think in my mind... I know that sounds really petty and shallow now. No, I, I don't think so. But I think I understand mindset enough and I understand that they're... There really are people, I, if, if somebody falls in love with my work and they genuinely do not have the means or believe that they can generate the means to buy it, for me, that doesn't mean that it's less of a success. I, of course, I want my work to sell as well. And Or we could barter. I love the barter system. No, we can't. <laughs> I, will, I want a landlord that will let me barter for art and we're, I'm good. Yeah, I'm done with that whole bartering conversation no i hate bartering just give me the money (laughs) all right you definitely have taken marketing courses i see it's good 
I mean, if it's going to be super useful and beneficial, maybe. But I feel like as there's this weird thing as artists where I guess it's not doing something for free, but it often falls. It feels like it still falls into that category of, oh, like, can you give me this or give me a discount or like somehow it feels like it's un- undervaluing. Oh, no, work. don't kid yourself. When I barter, I barter hard. Like I, one time <laughs> I bartered two, I don't know, 16 by 20 inch photographs for an eight foot by five foot painting. Okay. So yeah. like, I barter hard. Like I'm not giving that stuff away when I barter. Okay, good. No, no, bartering is not a, a, like a losing proposition for me. Well, I think maybe sometimes I've been asked to barter, but it's not when I really wanted something. I guess that's the difference. Yes. I hate the barter when basically the thing the other person has to offer is not something I want. Yeah. Yeah. That, and it's not a, a barter has to be an equal thing like that. You want something of theirs and they want something of yours and you will, you know, that's a good barter. Yeah. But yeah, a barter for something you don't want is not agreed. I completely agree with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Usually the thing I want more is the money. <laughs> it's tough, you know? I mean, I've traded for a lot of art in my life, and I love my collections that I've gotten together because of trading for art. So, and if I could find a landlord that would let me pay for my apartment or my house in in artwork, that's pretty good. That would work for you? It would work for me. Mm. Yeah. See, I actually don't like putting any pressure on myself to produce. Oh, I've got tons of work. I have so much. Yeah, let me go back a second. I was in the United Arab Emirates before I moved here, and for six years, I was probably the most productive I've ever been in my entire life, and I was unable to exhibit it because I worked figuratively and it was in a Muslim country. So I came to Prague now, and I have six years of work ready to exhibit, ready to sell, ready to barter with. So like, somebody wants to barter, I got work for you. No problem. (laughs) Tons of backlog. So that's a little different, but let's get back to your, the, the whole business that you're creating here. So you started it in 2015. So four years ago, mm-hmm. not to be blunt about it, but like, how is it working? Like, is it giving you some satisfaction? Is it giving you the personal financial security? Is it, is it doing the thing that you're sort of hoping it does for you? It is. Yeah. It, it definitely has taken some time. I mean, the first three years I was, I mean, I think it's important to talk about money. I basically doubled my income for the first three years. So, and it was more money than I had ever made consistently in my life. Okay, wait. So just to clarify that. So like first year you made X amount of money. Second Year two, you doubled year one. And then year three, you doubled year two. Yes. That's pretty impressive for the first three years of any business. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not that the first year was entirely I was sustainable. Say, I was going to say, unless the first year was like $100. <laughs> You know, I had been, I had figured out how to live very cheaply as an artist. So it was more than enough for me. Let's put it that way. Um, so no, it's worked really well. Um, it has a lot of challenges. It of course takes a lot of time, but for me, I really, up until now, I've wanted an equation where I wasn't dependent on artwork selling. So there's some other regular income coming in. Of course I have to you know, it's not like a nine to five job, but I've worked it out. So there's regular income. And then when work sells, it's fantastic. It's extra. Sure. You know, I would like to, at this point, now that the business is at a certain point, I want to flip back to putting even more attention on my art Mm -hmm. and getting it out there. But I kind of like this situation where I can pay the bills. 
you know? And I, we all dream of that stability. Yeah. And be able to you know save money or buy more, whatever, bigger studio, more art supplies, better art supplies, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's nice. I quite like it. And I feel the other thing, too, is for me, I feel like I've always had a coach in me. Um, and I actually, I think of what I do as I'm living my creative calling. I'm not just an artist, but I actually want to be able to bring together all the things that I care about and that I'm passionate about and find a way to do all of them. So being a coach and working with other artists, it really satisfies the whole other part of me. And I actually wouldn't only want to be in my studio all the time. Not me. I would love to be in my studio all the time. But but why did you choose to go down the path of like, let's say the sort of teaching coaching I mean, you're, you're using coaching i would in my mind i keep i think teaching um it versus like maybe like an art consultant or some other sort of you know thing that involves art marketing or something like this like where did art market being an artist then to, learning art marketing then how did you make that sort of leap to coaching i think i've always been a coach in some ways before i even knew that it existed as a field so one is I feel like I have a special ability to see people's potential and what they're really about. And the thing I actually care more about than art is the creative process and how we can basically, I can apply what I've learned to me in, from making a piece of art to creating almost anything at this point. So, and, and I love, I've always been so interested in people's experiences, their stories. You know, I'm a great listener and I love, I think that one of the, the world would be a different place if we were all asked really good questions regularly. And I don't, I'm not a, I'm not a teacher in the sense that I don't want to stand up and just lecture about what I know. I am a teacher, just so you know. Yeah. yeah, It's fine. (laughs) I'm not. So when I, for me, coaching and what I learned about coaching and how you can really help people work through their blocks and set goals and actually achieve certain things. Do you base this on a, like, uh, you know, of course I've read, uh, what's her name? Julia Cameron's artist way and all those kinds of things, you know, f- um, art, art and art and fear, uh, all these kinds of books. So like, is this the, the sort of the physical manifestation of something, things like that? There's a lot of those things in them, but most of what I teach is what I figured out through experience. So yeah, we have to work with the inner critic and sabotage and procrastination and, you know, all of those pieces. Um, Of course, there's lots of things I've learned along the way, but I I feel like it, all of this came because art making was actually never that easy for me. Oh, well, see, that's different. Yeah. So you're like, art making comes super easy for me. Like literally, my father's a painter, my mother's an interior decorator. So like it was just ingrained into me. I, you know, my first job, well, not my first job, my second job was working at the Smithsonian. So like you know, this kind of stuff just came, was just part of my life. And it wasn't, we didn't question it. It was just like, yeah, you do that. Okay. Yeah. I come from a lineage of factory workers and farmers. Very different. So it was very, there was very different expectations of what I would possibly do with my life. And so when I finally got to art school, I felt like, I probably wasn't an artist because it was so hard. And basically what was happening was the all the internal voices were saying, this is a waste of time, do something more valuable, this isn't possible. It was just a, you know, a barrage of things that made it very hard for me to, to keep doing this thing that I felt so called to do. Hmm. So I had to really 
learn a lot of tools to be able to continue showing up in the studio and do it with a lot more ease and, you know, not feel completely tortured all the time. I'm sorry. Don't be. You know, it's... I think what I've discovered is I'm not the only artist like this. Absolutely not. No. I mean, I'm I'm somewhat just sort of playing devil's advocate and taking the opposite position on you. But I have the same problems you're talking about. All the things you brought up, procrastination, self-doubt, um, you know, self-sabotage. I do all of those things. I'm not sitting here like in any way trying to say like, oh, no, my life is perfect. I've got it all figured out. If I had it all figured out, I wouldn't have created a podcast called the wise fool i have none of this figured out and it part for me is that it is the process of trying to figure these things out i mean i've had to change my career my career path my career i mean i've gone from working in museums working in galleries being a roadie um, i started working at baskin robbins when i was 14 years old and, and then i've also um, I ran a nonprofit organization. I've done um, public work, public sculpture programs. I've taught at universities. I've done all these different kind of things, and now I'm to the point where basically, I've had all these experiences, and I've suddenly realized that I know nothing, <laughs> and I don't know where to go from here. Yeah, and that's what I'm doing with this podcast. Is like I feel like there's a lot of people with the. With all the changes that are going on, specifically the internet, social media, all these kinds of things, like that, that the, the the older generation. I'm of an older generation. I'm 45 years old uh, in the arts. That's an older generation, and we don't know how to do that. The ways of being part of the community are very different than they were when I was being taught when I was young, and and so like I've lost all my understanding of how the industry works and so I think there are a lot of people sort of in that mid-career kind of point where we're just like things have changed from underneath us and we don't know how to get our footing again and find that foundation and and I've made the mistake and I've talked about this on the podcast before of like I moved too many times and I didn't create a good foundation a good group of people a good core group of people good community and network and think this is my own mistake but I'm trying to correct it now. So the we all are going through these things. Like I mean that's yeah, and just I, it's it seems like it's it, everybody is going through them but the problem is nobody's talking about it. Well, and I think the thing that I've always done as an artist and, and even now as a coach and a business owner is what you're doing with this or how I perceive it is that you turned the question into art. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, I have a cunning plan of this, which is that uh, I do this. Potentially more people will look me up on my website. They'll see my art. Maybe I'll get some more exhibitions out of this because I become you know known for doing this. But hopefully my art will also gain some tra- more traction because of this. So, yeah, it's a cunning little marketing plan of my own. Well, and, and, and for me, somebody had suggested this a long time ago, and I actually think there's a lot of truth in it, that basically what I created with a quote-unquote business is another body of work. In a lot of ways, it's been an art project. I don't necessarily frame it that way yet. Yeah. My my wife constantly comes to me. She's like, why don't you do private lessons? Why don't you do workshops? Why don't you do... And I'm like, every single one of these ideas you're coming up with, don't get me wrong, great ideas. They're all new jobs. (laughs) They're all completely different things that take a completely different mindset, a completely different thought way of doing different marketing techniques different practice different contacts to be able to accomplish them so like the hard part that i find is a lot of us 
have to do these side hustles. You know, we have to do lots of little jobs, basically. So you've got your two jobs. You've got your job in the studio, then you've got your job as coaching. And I'm betting maybe you do something else also. Not at this point. No, okay. Okay, not at this point, yeah. But recently you did something else. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. So we always have to do like... any given day, I have three jobs literally every day. I, I teach for an online university, I do portfolio reviews, and I do podcasts. And then I also have to be in the studio, so I guess technically I have four jobs that I'm supposed to do every day. I don't get to all four of them every day. But it's exhausting to have to shuffle between these different things. How do we deal with that sort of new way of thinking? Because like this is not the way it was 30 years ago, 40 years ago, maybe even 20 years ago. This seems to be something that's new in the arts industry that we have to do many multiple small jobs in order to get by. I think it becomes a question too of what kind of small jobs you want to be doing. You know, for me, I found one that was really intimately connected with the art I create. So I actually don't think in in a lot of ways, the way I think about it is... I have a a gift that transcends what I can do on a canvas. And I essentially am doing that in this conversation. I'm doing it when I'm on a coaching call. It doesn't actually matter what I'm doing that much, but I feel like the gift, like the essential thing that Jessica does in the world that benefits people comes through in all of these different ways. So once I figured out what that was, it became much easier for me to see it's not like I'm just running this business over here and I turn off parts of myself and then turn on other parts when I'm in the studio but they're actually manifestations of a very similar thing well and that's a conversation that I've had with numerous people which is when you as a creator of a, of a creative thing so it doesn't matter writer or visual arts whatever but do you choose should you choose to get your side hustles your part-time jobs in a creative field to also be creative through those or do you get jobs that have no creative element to them so that you don't have to sort of use up your creative capital at some job that's not your art i think it's really person specific i think the other dangerous i know that there's a danger too right because i can easily become the business owner and not an artist You know, when I was graduating uh, in the Bay Area, there was an opening to do the installation work at the SF MoMA, and I had done construction in my life. You know, I've, I've done the other odd jobs, and I thought about applying for it, and the chair of our department said to me at the time, just be careful because you are not going to be perceived as the artist in that position. You'll be perceived as the person putting on exhibitions for other artists, and don't think that you can then use that position behind the scenes to get your art on the walls. It's completely correct. I, I've known numerous preparators at different museums. But on the other hand, I know a friend of mine who was uh, who became a preparator at the Corcoran Museum of Art in Washington, D.C., and he ended up getting to be the uh, preparator for Paul Allen and his private collection. So, And he's been doing that, flying all around the world, being a preparator and a curator for his collection for decades now. And then that's, that's pretty good. I'd yeah. probably be happy doing that. I know. I think it goes back to your question of what's success for each person and how can you create the configuration that actually works for you? And that's going to look differently for every person. You know, there was a time where I was doing construction and painting walls, you know, in Berkeley, California, while I was getting my degree. And part of me loved that because it was so monotonous and I could just shut off. And it worked during that time. At this point, I happen to really like 
the configuration that I've come up with, it's not perfect. Don't get me wrong. It's not perfect. You know, sometimes the amount of time it takes to run a business, it, you know, outweighs the amount of time I can get to my studio. But, but you, the, we're sitting here in your studio. It looks like your business is literally in the same room as your studio. It is. Okay. They're intimately linked at this point. Um, I, I'm a really disciplined person, so I have that on my side, which basically means, and it works well actually living in Prague because most of my clients are in different time zones. So mornings are my studio time and I get to the studio almost every morning. I don't let business stuff creep in then. So I've been able to find a separation. Do I want some more studio time in the near future? Absolutely. You mentioned that most of your clients for your coaching are actually not in the Czech Republic? Hardly any are. And that I find very interesting. So you've chosen to be in the Czech Republic as your personal lifestyle, but yet most of your clients and people that pay for your services and desire your services even are not in the place where you live. So how do these people find you? Why do these people find you? Like, Give me a little bit of how, like, how do you get clients from all over the world? Uh, online marketing, Facebook, social media. I hardly advertise a knock on this table that I won't knock on now because it'll make a noise on your podcast. Thank uh, you for that. It, um, I actually haven't tried that hard. So I think it goes back to this marketing. It goes back to understanding who your work is really for. So I don't think that as artists we should ever make, you know, figure out who wants our work and then make it for those people. But Yeah, that's backwards. I, I spent a lot of time looking at who are my people? I think about it both in terms of my paintings and then also for the courses I run. And so I have online communities, you know, I use a lot of social media and I found these people or they found me. Okay. I love that you use social media very, a lot because this is a question I ask a lot of people. Like basically, does social media actually give you returns? You know, being an artist, you post your artwork up. Do you actually get sales from it, et cetera, et cetera? Yours is a little bit different because you sort of have a business you're using, but it's still an arts business. So it works for you. So what, do you, what, have, you see, what have you found that works well for you or, or, or even better? was a mistake you made well the mistake I'm currently making is that I'm not analyzing this stuff well so there's been a lot of blind luck if I'm being totally honest I think it's a blind I think it's blind luck in combination with sincerity and being able to connect with people on social media so okay if I put on my business person hat I don't analyze shit I don't look at analytics and I should right I'm not tracking things so there's some things to understand. There's definitely some territory to get into if you really want to expand your reach. Wait, I want to ask though, okay, because I build websites, I, I teach WordPress and all that kind of stuff. And so I use Google Analytics on my website, but social media insights are very different. Are you talking about like paying for a, a, some sort of insights or just the insights that come sort of free with Facebook and Instagram? And those Both. Sort of I, I hardly do any, and I realize that it would benefit me to explore it a little bit more. So, because well, I've always wondered, because there are these outside companies that do insights, whatever you, analytics, whatever you want to call it, and I've never paid for any of them. But I'm always wondering, like, what do they offer that's so much better than what I can get from Facebook or Instagram or or Google Analytics that is worth paying for? 
I don't know that I entirely have the answer to that, but I was working with somebody on an SEO audit for my site, and it was very clear that he knew a lot more about this business than I did. I hate SEO so much, so much. Do you I know, do you know don't. That they, they recently changed it. Like well, the problem is, it's constantly changing. Like it's a never the the target's constantly moving. The I think only in the last five years they changed it so that like every page you build on a website should have a minimum of three hundred words on it, or else it's not meeting search engine optimization. Well, I'm a visual artist. I put an image up and I just put like a title and a size and that's it. That's not three hundred words. How am I supposed to do three hundred words on a page? Yeah, it's it, it's a moving target. You're absolutely right. And, and I'm not the expert. Um, I think that there's a lot of uh, putting myself out there. And like I said, understanding the things that, and this is more for my courses. I don't actually expect to sell my art online. One, because I sell large scale paintings primarily. And at this stage. The, so does Damien Hurst. He, Damien Hurst is not <laughs> Jessica Saran. Okay. <laughs> Saying. Um, it's not that it's not possible. I haven't put a lot of energy and intention into that. So when it comes to selling or finding, you know, new artists to work with for the courses, coaching clients, it's it has a lot to do with connection, you know. It's all about connections. Yeah. Yeah. And and understanding what a marketing funnel is and you know, it's basically about building relationship. I can say marketing funnel, and some people might think that sounds really icky and sleazy. I don't even understand what it means. It's basically what it means is you wouldn't um, meet somebody off the street and say, hey, do you want to buy my large-scale painting? I think you'll really like it. You meet a new person, and you'd be like, hey, uh, I'm Jessica. Who are you? Oh, what do you like? What do you do? You start to get to know each other, right? And it's like you don't... It's a process. It's a process of building a relationship with people that offs, it, it creates some trust, right? So these kind of basic things where, you know, you can try to sell something online and, you know, just throw it up and try to promote it. Well, why, people need to come across your stuff usually a lot of times. You're just making me think about like all the times that like either I worked in a gallery or I was the artist where like you would just go in cold to a gallery completely not knowing anybody there and that or they don't know you in any way. And you're like, hi, I'm Matt. I, I make art. Do you want to sell my art? Like it's now looking back now that I've done this and, and had more experiences. I'm like, my God, I was such an idiot. Like it's just not what it is. No, it's about relationship, really. Well, but and it's about building long-term relationships, not yes. short-term relationships, and not relationships that are, I will be friends with this person because they will somehow benefit my career directly. That's the one of the worst things you can do, and I'm as guilty of it as every other arrogant white man from America. I'm sure that we we, we try to use friends and associates for our own benefit. Yeah. Yeah, that that sucks. <laughs> yeah, but I'm self-aware of it at this point, yeah. so I'm hoping that I'm not doing it anymore. Yeah. But, but I mean, I can remember a time in my life when I was trying to strategically be friends with certain people because I believed that somehow they could benefit my career. Mm. And that's just not healthy. It's not, And it's not going to benefit your career at all. No. It, I, yeah. And it sucks to be treated that way. I've had it happen to me. It's awful. I'm sure I've done it, too. We all do it in various ways. Uh, 
I know. I just feel, I suddenly feel really pathetic. <laughs> it's okay. You're just human. <laughs> well, we make mistakes and hopefully we learn from our mistakes. And that was definitely one of my mistakes that I remember distinctly from a particular time in my life that I'm like, oof, that was bad. Mm. But anyways, so moving forward though. So you were sitting in your studio and you have shown me a book that you made, The Field Guide to the Czech Psyche. Mm. And the... It's an interesting thing in and of itself. It's probably a little check specific for most clients and most you know people. But what I found interesting that you talked about was how you got it produced. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so there was a couple of ways I did it. So this was the project I mentioned. Um, I had been living in this small town. I had a nervous breakdown and I got a grant from the Canadian government to get this project started. So I got a couple thousand dollars, which I naively thought would be enough money to finish the project that I naively thought would take six months. So partway through that, I realized I'm going to have to find another funding source. So of course, part of it was my own money, but then in order to, so it's um, the final product is a book and there's a collection of posters that go, I made paintings based on these. It's all about the conversations I had with people who are Czech from when I first moved here, trying to figure out what is this place? What does it mean to be Czech? How does your identity, how is it influenced by the place you were born? If people wanted to buy this at this point, is it available anywhere? Uh, it's no longer online, but I have some copies, so they can just reach out to me. We will link to your website in the, in the show notes. Yeah. So I wanted to produce this art book and I wanted it to be designed beautifully. And I also wanted to have an exhibition at the end. So I ended up crowdfunding uh, over $13,000 to finish all of this, to print it, to have the exhibition, to pay the designer, all of the things associated with, you know, getting it finalized. Now, you say you crowdfunded it. What did you use? Kickstarter, Indiegogo, what did you do? I used Indiegogo. Indiegogo. Why did you choose Indiegogo over any of the other ones? I'm trying to think. I think at the time, I couldn't use Kickstarter as a Canadian. I may be wrong. Um, I can't. I think it was. I was going to use one or the other. I feel like that was the reason at the time. So this was back in 2013. I think. Oh, there's still like, I can't get this podcast onto Google Play, like mm. Google or Android Play or whatever. I can't get it because I'm in the Czech Republic. They won't let me publish it there. So those kinds of limitations still exist. Yeah, I think that was it at the time. I don't know how it's set up now. So yeah, I actually, um, and, and I had been learning about business and marketing. So, you know, you were asking me when we were on break, how did I basically do this what did it require i am so wanting to know the the how a creative person create creating something very personal to them can use these kinds of crowdfunding things to make some products so yeah i mean beside the you know all the big huge things we see out there the gadgets and all these kinds of things i mean like this is an art project so like how do you use indie you know these crowdfunding sources to fund art I would say there's a couple of things. Story was a huge part of it. So I really tried to bring people on the journey with me. So I started, I had started around that time doing videos for some of these online courses. I think, no, no, actually crowdfunding was the first time I actually started doing any kind of video online. And so I would go to places where I would go to the place where I was having the exhibition and I would shoot a video talking about the project there 
or I would go to the town where I had interviewed somebody. And I just kept turning on the camera and I just, so I think story and the other thing that worked, I didn't take no for an answer. You know, when I did the math and I realized it was going to be over $13,000, that number blew my mind, but I was like, what other choice do I have? I've committed. I've set, and this is, this is one of my other tricks. I, I booked the exhibition. I already told people this was happening. I had met with the printer. I was like, game on. This is happening. I'm not stopping until I have all the money I need to do it. And I just kept showing up for, I think I ran it for 24, 25 days, the whole campaign. Mm. And, you know, over the years, I obviously have a, a, a good sized network of people. And I made sure that the rewards were interesting. Of course, there was copies of the book, but there was also, um, I would do private drawings for people. You know, there was experiences with me that they could get as a reward. And I think that people just caught, got caught up in my enthusiasm and they wanted to believe that this was possible as well. That's really the nature of crowdfunding, though, in general, like yeah. trying to get the. But, but the question then, so like I could imagine somebody out there listening to this podcast and go, well, I, I did a crowdfunding thing and it didn't succeed. What's the, how do you, how do you translate all the connections you've made, all the relationships you have throughout your life into getting them to fund your project? For me, it's similar to what I do to fill an exhibition. I just ask people. I write them. Yeah, that's hard. No, I, yes, kind of hard. But I spent a lot of time during my campaign writing personal emails I also had a couple of articles written. I, I really reached out to people personally because I, I don't know about you, but if somebody sends, you know, this mass email like, hey, I'm having this exhibition, eh, maybe I'll go. Maybe it looks interesting. But if the person I know says, hey, Jess, I'd love to have you come to my show. I'm super excited about this new work. It's going on my calendar. There's a much higher percentage that I'm actually going to show up and be there. You know, what's funny is nobody ever does that to me. Like, Nobody? I, I never get emails like that. I, whenever I have an exhibition, that's how I fill exhibitions. I mm -hmm. spend a day or two privately inviting people, taking the time. It's about relationship again. And I did the same thing with this campaign. Like, I was on it. Maybe I just have very selfish friends and they just don't do that. I don't know. I think we're not... We, we, you know, there's Facebook events, there's mass emails. There's so many reasons not to I'll these tell you, days. I love Facebook events actually, because I can be looking at Facebook on my phone and I can just hit add to calendar and it's done. So I don't have to like copy and paste anything. I don't have to like be like, did I transpose that correctly? Did I get the date right? The address right? It's so easy. I love that resource. <laughs> yeah, I love it too. I will I, go to I more events from Facebook than anything else simply because of the ease of being able to put it onto my calendar. Yeah. I'm that lazy. Yeah. Yeah, so that's basically how I did it. And I literally just decided it was happening. I was going to do whatever it take, whatever it took to make it happen. And it did. Did you, so you met your goal. Did, did you exceed it or did you like just squeak in? Yeah, I exceeded it by a couple hundred dollars. That's decent. Yep. Yeah. That's tough. That scares the hell out of me. Like, I mean, because like, I'll be honest, like, I've thought about doing it because I've got... You know, over the course of my career, I've probably got like seven books that I could publish of like all these different portfolios that I've done. And 
the idea of basically like putting my heart and soul into creating this crowdfunded thing and then it potentially not working is just a crushing fear that I'm like, I, you know, because, because you're going to, you're going to go through all the trouble to, to create the crowdfunding thing. So like the bonuses, the videos, the story, the whole thing like that. And then you will email all your friends, you will contact all your friends. And then when it fails, that is crushing. Now, I've never done it. So even just the fear of it failing like that is crushing because everybody will know that I did it because I asked them to help. And then they will all know that it failed. Yes. I was listening to one coach recently. She had this whole podcast on failure tolerance. And I, I always joke that every artist has a whole folder of rejection letters. It comes with the territory. I have multiple binders. No, no, yeah. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt, but I think I actually see this a lot, especially as I'm working with other artists and coaching them. You know, let's say, because I'll work with artists who might also want to develop their own course or workshop or do some teaching or figure out that other income stream. Well, sometimes I see that they'll offer it once and they don't get 27 people in their first course and then they give up. Well, I can assure you, I have launched courses where I've had one or no people sign up. You got to keep going. You have to be all in or it's never going to work. Oh, yeah. Well, this podcast is the same. I launched it, you know, 15, 20 people listened in the first week. Now we're substantially higher than that. And hopefully and every week it seems to be progressing to more and more and more and more. So you have to put the time and the effort in for sure. And you have to start from the bottom. But but the crowdfunding, I got to admit, that just scares the shit out of me. <laughs> like that, that feels utterly and potentially a huge embarrassment and I have a fear of embarrassment so there you go yeah I guess I wasn't that scared of that um I don't know why I just I I was so hell-bent and I just wasn't gonna stop so I just went for it I think it was a little bit of naivete well I think you also had the benefit of some pre-existing support also so like you were also able to say like oh this is partially funded by the canadian government and then that does help a lot at least emotionally to say somebody thought this was worthwhile enough to already invest in it but i'm talking about like where you have nobody investing in it so like it's just like this is my dream i'm gonna put it on this thing it's like so scary well not something you know i've i've obviously researched and i did some studying around crowd crowdfunding before and since and and even when you're applying for grants it's great if you can have multiple supporters so depending on the scale of what you're trying to do I mean that's a great thing to start with is even if you can get somebody to give you $500 and somebody else this business to say we'll do the design for free or these kinds of things you know to have more people on board is is a really great place to start with a campaign yeah I mean the one thing that people always say about like grants and stuff like this like a matching grant is always going to, you're going to get more money. You're going to get more support. You're going to get everything. The more people you get sort of signing on. So matching grants are better than basically putting all your eggs in one basket and trying to get only one grant because if you don't get it, you get nothing. Yeah. Whereas you can, if you get one smaller grant, you can leverage that to get some other bigger grant. So it's a, again, it's more relationships and sort of building on these things than just putting it all in one place. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of the, the, you know, basically the vulnerability, the embarrassment around it, 
the other thing that I do and I teach is it's not just the external things you're doing. It's not just the action steps. It's not just the videos you're making. It's also your mindset, right? It's all of the limiting beliefs that we have around what isn't, isn't possible. So you can believe that I had to do a shit ton of journaling during this process. I had to look at what are my beliefs. I had to deal with the people who <laughs> sent me the nasty emails because I was even doing this in the first place. You know, there was a lot that came up in the process. You know, I had never generated $13,000 for an art project before. So I was pushing myself into new territory. And of course it brought up a lot of fear as well, but I worked through it. I think that's the thing. I, I became aware that that was also part of the work I had to do to make this happen. Tell me a little bit more about the coaching, the, the, the act of, the practice of, what can people expect if they choose to take on a, a coach? Yeah, I'll start by saying this. I, my coaching is all geared for artists. So it's not some kind of pure life coaching or business coaching. It's really to support artists because I understand it. So I would say, if I were to simplify, it's really about actually identifying what you want. What are your desires? What are your visions? What are your goals? And then setting some timelines around that and then basically together moving forward to accomplish those things and clear out a big part of it is clearing out everything that's stopping you so a lot of it is having to get really uncomfortable and do the things that we'd rather not have to do but that are actually required to get where we want to go and I would say combined with I think one of the things that I do really well is I I see people Right. So a lot of the artists I work with, they fundamentally feel like there's not really a place for them. They, you know, they struggle to make art. They feel like they're too much. They're too sensitive. It's mostly women, you know. And so it's partially having somebody on their side who actually sees what they perceive as weaknesses, as strengths. And specifically helping them to bring those things into their artwork and then into these other things they want to do, like have exhibitions or get publicity or get grants. You mentioned that uh, most of your clients are women. Mm. So what's your sort of gender breakdown? 95% women at this point. Yeah. There was more men at the beginning, but I have fewer men who are working with me at this point. When I was a running a community darkroom, I thought that all of my clients would be men. I'm like, oh, men love photography. Men love being in the darkroom. 90, 95% were women. It's a very interesting thing that, um, you know, not sort of non-academic courses and classes for arts seem to be pretty prevalent with, with uh, women. Well, mm, the people I work with too, they're also really interested in personal development and spirituality. So it's a little bit like if you walk into most yoga classes, larger percentage of women. <laughs> you were talking about setting goals. One of the questions that I always ask at the end of my podcast, so I will sort of jump this forward since you brought up the topic of setting up goals. One of my plans for this podcast is, is that I've created a quantifiable goal, uh, an outcome that will show that I have learned how the art world works effectively enough to be able to have a piece of my artwork exhibited in the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. So... What can I do to achieve that goal? Well, that's a good question. I, 
I think a lot in terms of breaking it down as well. So what can you, you know, what's the time frame for that? What can you do, you know, in the next four months, six months to move closer to that? I think that's one part of it. Um, I think there's so many different aspects of it. Uh, I also do a lot of work to help people do that. Like I said earlier, the internal stuff that has to happen. So the mindset, what do you believe? You know, what is actually going to stop you from making that happen? And then looking at what are the action steps? What are the, the actual things that you need to be doing in the world to make that a reality? So certainly looking at both of those and constantly working on both of those is one aspect of it, I would say. So this is a, this is literally something. Now, I, I one thing I didn't get to mention: whatever recommendations you give me, I will do, and I will keep everybody involved throughout the process. So every recommendation I get, I will. As soon I'm going to start doing these little interim podcasts, basically where I keep everybody involved in all of the things, the successes and the failures that I, in my attempt to achieve the goal of having a piece of my artwork in the Museum of Modern Art, because this is one of the things that I think a lot of people don't talk about in the arts. Like, generally, we see the success. We see the exhibition. We see the results of the grant. We see the book publishing. We see the the positive, but we don't hear about the trials and travails, the difficulties, the failures. So I'm going to actually do whatever you tell me to do, and I will keep everybody updated on the process. So so it is a little bit hard without knowing you better. But one thing that gains a lot of traction consistently for myself and artists is if you were to, on a weekly basis, do the last thing you wanted to do. I do that every day. You do? What is it? Change the cat litter. <laughs> Not like that. In connection to this goal, if you think no. about really who... Here's how I think about it. Who do you have to become in order to get your work into the MoMA? Because if you were already that person now, your work would already be in the MoMA, but you're not yet. So you are going through a developmental process to get your work in the MoMA. So if you can think about who is the version of me that has their work in the MoMA, how are they showing up and how are they operating? And I bet if you break that down and look at it, there's going to be a lot of things that you would rather not have to do that are going to make you really uncomfortable to get there. And if you start doing those things, I think you'd probably gain a lot of traction. I need to think more about that. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's a legitimate thing to have to think about. The biggest thing that everybody keeps telling me that I have to do is research, research, research. And that's the one thing I really dread doing because it's boring and dry and uninteresting. So, What do they tell you you need to research? Curators. Uh, the best way to get to museum exhibitions is generally through the curator. You do research over the history of the space. So whatever, whether it's Tate Modern, Guggenheim, whatever, MoMA, uh, you research previous curators that have curated exhibits either similar in style or similar in aesthetic or similar in medium to the things that you do. Uh, and then you approach them directly, basically. And then they would be the sort of liaison for you to then get into that institution. So that's, but I have to go back through, you know, decades of, exhibitions at MoMA to try and find curators that curate the, uh, that's just, yeah, that's, I've been procrastinating on that horribly. 
because this is that this element of doing this thing that I'm taking outside input on what to do and then I'm doing it and then I'm going to tell everybody about it and keep them involved is probably one of the most vulnerable things I've probably ever done in my life because generally again people don't talk about these failures and and like I've already in my mind I've already got what the first podcast about this is going to sound be topicked and it's going to be the topic of procrastination because I've been procrastinating doing that part of the podcast for like five weeks now so yeah it's a really great question I love that you have this goal the other thing that I am a firm believer in is that it's not always that easy to know exactly what to do and that there's also an aspect of it's like yeah we can think we need to do all of this research but also that's why I think it's a lot achieving goals is a is a creative process because you also have to be in the process and wait for inspiration sometimes or you know when I'm painting I get a lot of insight about oh I should do this to have the next exhibition or oh god I need to send so and so an email and I find that most of the things that I've achieved have never been super linear because I've plotted it all out and said if I just do these six things it will get me to this goal but instead I'm constantly showing up and being curious you know what's one thing what's one inspired thing I could do today to get me closer to that goal And, you know, some of the best exhibitions I've had are because I just happened to walk into a gallery and talk to so-and-so and and they said, oh, I need you to meet this person. So I think a lot of times we have to be asking really great open-ended questions. You know, what's it going to take to get me into the MoMA? And and wait for inspiration to come in. It's a hashtag now too, by the way. I've created a hashtag for it. I think it's exhibit at MoMA or exhibit my work at MoMA or no show my work at MoMA and why does it matter to you so much it doesn't really but it was the idea that that what I think is a great element of this podcast is basically talking about things that artists and creative people generally don't talk about so one of those things was for me is that personal journey so basically i wanted to create a literal personal journey that everybody can follow along with that they can sort of experience through me basically so i will be the guinea pig i will be i will be the wise fool i will be the one that will make the mistakes on their behalf to to try to learn how to navigate the arts industry for better or for worse and is that tied into your definition of success I've been asked this numerous times recently. It's hard. Um, My general working definition of success is... Yeah, shit. It's hard. I'm sitting here. I've got one that I generally use on a day-to-day basis, but then, of course, there's the ego in me that has a different one. So... On the one hand, a certain definition of success is being a, being able to have the time, the money, and the space to simply do whatever I want to do. To me, that is a definite. I would believe that my life was successful if I was able to have the time, money, and space to do my creative thing and not have to do anything else. That would be great. The ego in me would like to either have my artwork in the history books as a, an example of you know a movement, a style, whatever, um, 
or of course be have some exhibitions in a major institution yeah we all want that we all have egos i think i hope or maybe it's just me well what i when i put on my coach hat what's interesting to me is the second definition has a lot more energy the second definition is oddly probably the easier one to accomplish and do you know why you know what aspect of your work should go into the history books already why is why why does it why does it matter why does it matter oh i feel like i'm being psychoanalyzed right now but i'm gonna let it go it's fine um why does it matter um it's funny i've had this conversation with a number of other people who've talked to and why does it matter i think part of it is is that being raised in america which is very capitalistic and very um, they're very overly supportive in in many ways that's not true in other places like here the i was raised that basically i could be anything i wanted to be and i could be the best in the world at it like these were the kinds of phrases that were given to me as a child like you can be whatever you want to be and you can be the best in the world so why not why can't i be yeah, for me, it's a terrible reason. But I think I think the question of, you know, well, I feel like it's about the deeper motivation, which of I think really matters, well, you know. And I've had conversations with people that have basically said, like, I've had friends who've had exhibitions in places like MoMA and they're, the artists are no more satisfied or happy with their lives. Like, it, it was a goal for them and then when they achieved it, it did nothing for them. Yeah, and I'm a big believer in... I do believe we all have a purpose, something that we're actually here to do. So for me, if this is aligned with your purpose, that's fantastic. But if it's just an interesting, empty pursuit... Mm. Well, I'll tell you a story <laughs> that I don't tell to many people. And now I'm telling it to everybody. Is that... Um, when I was working in San Francisco, I was working in a gallery and this guy walked in at random and, and we were like, hi, you know, do you have any questions about the art? And he, we got to talking. It turns out that this guy ran a website called astro.com, which is an astrological website. Now, my boss, the, man, the owner of the gallery, was a huge person, big advocate. Like when we hung an exhibition, we had to be sure to put a red piece in a particular place because it feng shuied it and all this kind of jazz. So she paid to have all of our astrological charts done. And when, when they did the, all of the astrological charts, the, the guy turned to me when, when he was done with mine and said, you, you're going to change the world. I love it. And I'm just like, great, no pressure. Mm. Like, thanks. Like I didn't have enough pressure on myself. Now you just told me I'm supposed to change. He said, he said like, I have the same things in my star chart as like Mahatma Gandhi and Winston Churchill and all these other people. And I'm just like, great, no pressure. And what do you want to change about the world the most? <laughs> At this moment, what I want to change is I want to be, I want the arts to be more... I want the art industry to be able to support artists. Like I, I'm tired of the idea of starving artists. 
that shouldn't be true. That shouldn't be necessary. We don't hear about starving CEOs, starving bankers. Like, why do artists have to be starving? That's mm. just ridiculous. So why can't that change? This is beautiful. This, this feels like your why. This is why you're really doing it. Well, it's because I want to be, I mean, how many artists do we both know between us, like literally between us, that support themselves purely by making art? Not many. I could think of maybe two. Mm-hmm. And they're not living great standards of life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're, you know, they're living, they're sustaining themselves. But why? Why is it somebody who has a talent to make a, a creative thing has to be starving, whereas a t- person who has a talent to sell something or market something or come up with some algorithm to create some banking system or, or stock market thing, why can they make a lot of money for their skill, but our skill is not supported or, or paid or sustainable even? That's, a, that's another issue is sustainability because I've had conversations about artists that they work on a project and they work and work and work and then like the the market changes. And so even though they're making the same quality of work, they're putting the same amount of effort in them, you know, their work hasn't changed. The market's interest has changed. And so now therefore they're no longer making anywhere near as much money as they did. Yes. That doesn't happen in other businesses. Well, bankers suddenly don't have market shifts and earn, have different salaries. Yeah, and amen, and I totally get this, and I feel like that's that's even why I say, you know, who do you need to become to make this a reality? Because preacher man. Well, I too feel like I'm definitely on a mission that I don't want, also don't want artists to starve. I don't want them to believe that what they're doing isn't a valuable contribution. And I feel like once we start to treat and appreciate what we're doing in a different way others also start to treat and appreciate what we're doing in a different way. Right, which is my point, which is that it's not about the artists treating it this way. It's about the rest of society treating artists this way. Like everybody doesn't feel like my own brother will look at my artwork and be like, oh, my five-year-old kid can make more interesting stuff. Like, I mean, we're so marginalized and down sort of looked down upon looked at as the outside of society and the outside of culture yet we're the people that define culture literally we're the ones that define what the plays are going to be what the movies are going to be what you see on tv what you decorate your home with all of these things start with people like you and me absolutely i think there's probably a number of different ways to do it I think one of the ways is also through, for, for me, it's working with the artists directly, right? Because something does profoundly change when we show up differently. You know, when we can show up confidently, believing more in what we do, talking about what we do as artists, celebrating it, you know, having exhibitions because we believe we should, we can, that it's interesting. Hopefully the work is also interesting. But I think that something changes in the way people experience it as well when we're able to shift the way that we perceive it. Yeah. And the hard, the hard part of course is that like when I was a kid, I was always taught that it's easier to steer a boat if you're on the boat. So trying to be part of the art market and trying to, you know, course correct it in this way is easier than trying to be an outsider, trying to sort of steer the boat in some way. So, the issue is that like 
while I want certain elements to change, I do also have to participate in it in order to help manifest that change. So it's a balancing act and it's difficult because I don't want to sit here acting like some arrogant cheerleader, like, oh no, we, we should be treated equally to whatever else. And it's not, it's not really the way to go because it's going to turn people off as much as it'll, it'll, you know, turn people on to it. So, yeah. Well, it's one of the things that I believe in too. And I often say to artists, you know, if something doesn't exist and you want it, it's your job to create it. Oh yeah. Now, it's more complicated. There's a lot of other factors, but I think that is one big aspect of it. You know, deciding that we also have the power to create certain things and that we're not just at the mercy of the system that already exists. Yeah, don't, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I There are certain elements of the system that I think are fabulous. You know, the whole gallery system, I think, is great uh, if it's done correctly and well. But on the other hand, there are other things that I just don't know enough about. And again, this is sort of why I'm doing this podcast, because I don't understand the benefits of art fairs. Like, I don't get those. Residencies, some I understand, some I don't understand. Grants, I totally get the reason for grants. But on the other hand, I've seen a lot of grants that are given to things that I don't understand why they're given to them. So, like, I think that's more about the the committees and the judges and the criteria for grants, I think is sort of maybe sometimes questionable. But there's just a lot going on and it all seems to be sort of behind the scenes. It's not talked about. It's not open. It's not transparent. And I mean, artists as a general whole, like if you went out into the world and you like walked up to 10 different people and and one of them was an artist, that person would probably be the most open and transparent of the 10 people randomly on the street. But yet when it comes to the business of the arts, least transparent. Often. Yep. And that's why I'm here. I'm so glad you're doing this. Hopefully it'll do something. Time will tell. Yeah, I know. Yeah, we'll see. Thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. My pleasure.